welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 16, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox and Michael Portantier. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She also has her own podcast called Spotlight on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. Happy Father's Day. Well, thank you. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see, you could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, at the end of this uh, podcast, I did an interview with um, Carrie Purcell, who we've had on many times before as a host. But Carrie and I interviewed a guy named Mark Perry, who is the producer of Quilt, a musical celebration that's going to be happening down at Judson Church on June 21st to the 23rd. So stay tuned for that after our review section. Uh, and then after that, Peter's going to join us for trivia. So don't, uh, don't miss that as well. There is some news in the Broadway radio universe. Um, Ashley Steves has joined the Today on Broadway team, and that also means that I'm going to exit Today on Broadway. Um, many people have expressed concern about this. I am still with Broadway radio. Absolutely not an issue. It's just freeing up some of my time so that I can f- focus on the development of Broadway radio, uh, you, know, you know, behind the scenes and the technology uh, and advertising and uh, various other ways to expand the Broadway radio network. It does not mean that I will be leaving today on, uh, today on Broadway permanently. If Matt and Ashley have uh, things that conflict, I'll drop in as a substitute here and there. It also means that uh, uh, I will still be on this week on Broadway every, every Sunday. So don't worry about that. We've gotten some messages behind the scenes about that. This is uh, just all really good stuff that's happening here. Great. So first up in the news, Jenna and I got to see uh, Much Ado About Nothing at uh, Shakespeare in the Park at the Delacour Theater. So Jenna, why don't you tell us about your experience at Much Ado? So thank you. Uh, yeah, Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, honestly, this is probably the exact comedy we need right now. Uh, it's one of Shakespeare's funniest and smartest comedies Uh, But under Kenny Leon's direction, the play just takes on a lot of new depths and new meanings. So the premise of the play is the same. That hasn't changed. Uh, Soldiers on leave from a war conspire to bring a quarreling pair of exes back together, while the token villain, who literally has no other character motivation than just, I'm a villain, conspires to split up another couple. Uh, what makes this production special is that this is not Messina, Sicily in the 1500s. This is Messina, Georgia in the year 2020 with a huge Stacey Abrams for president sign hanging over the elegant old house that set designer Beowulf Borwit, Borit sorry, designed for the Delacorte stage. Um, bringing the play into the present time and the present country, Leon and the creative team have opened it up to some new interpretation. The program notes, and I never noticed this before, uh, the program notes that Shakespeare never specified what war the soldiers are fighting in or who their enemy is. And uh, this gives Leon the freedom to create an enemy offstage that gives the comedy a little bit more weight. The play as written has some serious undertones, and from the moment the soldiers enter, we are reminded of the violence that is not very far away. Uh, The cast, headed by Danielle Brooks as the headstrong Beatrice, 
and Grantham Coleman as a very macho posturing Benedict is entirely black, and the rhythms and cadences of Shakespeare's 400-year-old English sound right at home in the Ave, uh, African-American vernacular English accent. And more than that, this cast makes Shakespeare's language sound like natural, organic dialogue. And a lot of the challenges that come from trying to follow archaic words just really disappear here. Uh, When the play focuses on Don John's lies about Hero, it's kind of hard not to think about all the articles we've read about the abuse black women have had to deal with for centuries in this country. And the Stacey Abrams sign over the stage uh, really becomes a lot more poignant. Uh, All of the characters are very happy to support a black woman on a far-off campaign trail, but when a vicious rumor spreads about a black woman in their midst, many of the characters are not willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. And again, all of this is accomplished with very few changes to the script, and all of those extra layers just make the play much more thought-provoking. For the cast leading the show, Brooks and Coleman are absolutely delightful. They hit every comic note in the script. They find many more. Brooks's Beatrice is very smart and observant. She's an upbeat woman, way too intelligent to settle for anything less than what she wants. And honestly, that kind of makes the hoodwinking that leads her to Benedict rather annoying because she's way too smart to fall for a stunt like that. But this is a comedy and stunts like that work in comedies. Uh, Coleman's Benedict is all bluff and bluster, always trying to look tough and never quite getting it Uh His interpretation of the character really works. Uh, His reaction to the meatloaf line, you know what I mean, he would do anything for love, but he won't do that, uh, is excellent. He lets the moment go from romantic to dramatic and back again. Uh, Chuck Cooper, he's got a voice for Shakespeare. Uh, He was an amazing Lord Capulet a few years back on Broadway. His take on Leonardo balances plenty of pompous humor and then some truly terrifying rage very well. Margaret Odette and Jeremy Harris are very endearing as Hero and Claudio, the younger lovers who are torn apart by a cruel stunt. But Shakespeare just gives them much less to do than he does Beatrice and Benedict, which is kind of a shame. Um, Their chemistry is great. Uh, Latifah Holder gets a lot of laughs as Dogberry, the uh, the captain of the guard who helps resolve everything, but with wonderful, massive amounts of malapropisms that are very, very funny. And she lands... Uh, some wonderful laughs there. Uh, I mentioned Beowulf Bort's set earlier, and it deserves a lot of praise. It just blends in with the surrounding park, and it also simultaneously conveys prestige with the very large house and a manicured lawn. But the house, in some moments, just looms over the action, almost like a threat. It's a great way to convey both the comedy and the drama of a piece all at once. Uh, Emilio Sosa's costumes work very well to convey the character's wealth and their status, also their taste. I mean, Shakespeare wrote these characters as nobility. Uh, They dress the part. I'm going to mispronounce this name terribly, and my Polish ancestors are wailing in grief. Peter uh, Kesrowski, did I say that right? Uh, It sounds right. Yeah, I think so. Peter Kesrowski, to all my... To Mr. Kosrowski and my Polish ancestors, I'm sorry. Uh, The lighting also deserves a lot of praise. Uh, Even after the sun set on the stage and the park was in darkness, he makes the Delacorte stage look like morning and noon, to the point that I got a bit of a shock when I glanced up and realized the sun had gone down in real life. 
and uh, Jason Michael Webb is credited as the composer. And I don't want to spoil some of the nicest surprises of the evenings, the moments that are not necessarily in Shakespeare's script. Um, but his work with music in the play is really lovely, and it helps establish throughout that the story is taking place here and now. Um, Shakespeare's script does have plenty of problems and some ridiculous leaps of logic, like most comedies do. So Leon can't solve all the issues with much ado. But he really has given this play new life. And I hope, like uh, Merchant of Venice a few years ago, this transfers for an extended run on Broadway and more audiences will get to see it. So, Jenna, uh, can I, if I said this, would you agree with it that uh, for the most part, the text has not been changed, but the directory focused the production to make a whole new point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I did notice a couple changes in the text, uh, and the music is different. Yeah, uh, notably. But I mean, there's one line uh, after Benedict has been tricked and is now expressing how much he loves uh, Beatrice, and he says. Uh, I, the line was not there, but in the script, he says, if I do not love her, I am a Jew. Hmm. And that was gone. So I I appreciated that, again, on behalf of my Polish ancestors. Um, Can you there, talk just a little bit about the uh, dialect you mentioned? Because I'm not familiar with that specific dialect. You said Ave? Ave, African-American vernacular English. Uh, it used to be called Ebonic sometimes. It's sometimes called Black English. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, <laughs> I have it's, heard that term. Okay. okay. It's the contemporary black dialect. And it make it, again, it brings the story into the present, into Georgia. And it just works with Shakespeare's language beautifully. Well, and, it's funny how it, sometimes that happens. I, I, I mentioned, I'm sure many times, that years ago there was a production of Taming of the Shrew in the park at, at the Delacorte with uh, Tracy Ullman and Morgan Freeman. Mm-hmm. And they did it in the, in the Wild West. And somehow, you know, talking like this, you know, wow, Petruchio, what happy wind blows you to Padua? You know, it just actually kind of really worked really well. Um, so it's funny how that you you wouldn't think that either of those dialects and, and accents would necessarily work with Shakespeare. But I, I, I guess it's good because it, uh, you know, we're really concentrating on the words and and it, it gives them a new um, a new life in a way. It does. And. It, it, what's the, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I was reminded during the show of a comment Harvey Firestein made years ago. Um, this was during the original run of Torch Song Trilogy. And he said that straight audience members would come up to him and say, I was so moved by this play. And this isn't a gay play. It's universal because I'm straight and I was moved by it. Right. And he said very angrily, no, for all my life, I've seen straight movies, straight plays, and I've had to translate what's happening on the screen, on the stage to my own life. <laughs> now you have to translate what's happening on the stage to your life. I loved that Leon made this play a celebration of contemporary black life. And a very diverse audience, including, you know, a good number of white people in the audience. We had to translate this play to us now. This was a play that with a black cast, black director, and we get to translate it now. And that it was just thrilling. It was 
a wonderful uh, what a wonderful little moment to realize this was a play written by a racist white man 400 years ago and it works in this other culture this other idiom this uh, the the ave language beautifully and it was just thrilling to suddenly realize i'm translating not just archaic english but another culture's perspective into my own i get to do the translating now they don't have to so again back to my I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, no. That that was all really, uh, (laughs) I I think that really adds to what I'm about to say. So the text hasn't, you know, for the most part been changed. The directory focused the production to make a whole new point. Uh, Why is this different than Oklahoma? I'm not entirely sure that it is. Huh. Well, Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I thought we were going to limit our discussion today to half an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, you know, these are both classics, Oklahoma and Much Ado, and um, have been done a million different ways from Sunday. And the director, Daniel Fish for Oklahoma and uh, Kenny Leon for Much Ado have have taken these classic properties and, and refocused them. So, uh, me, Oklahoma is complete. Well, I haven't seen this much ado, but Oklahoma is a problem because the character, se- several of the characters are completely reinterpreted and also uh, a central, central plot, uh, point at the end of the show is, is completely rewritten, even though the dialogue is not rewritten. So that's my answer to that. My short answer to, okay. to that question. <laughs> Fair enough. I wish you'd emailed this earlier. I would have sat down and thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, as much in my life, uh, I I didn't think about this until you started talking. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm more a stream of consciousness person than a a planner. And me, uh, I want to go to a library and do the research. So, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you and I are like peanut butter and jelly. You know? That's true. We, uh, well, which that's, of us is which? Huh. Uh, whichever one you like, I'll be the other because I love both equally. You know? There we go. That works. <laughs> so uh, I really enjoyed this much ado. And I brought my daughter who is uh, 11 years old and she had a very good time as well. And and I asked her in intermission to explain to me what was happening. And she was right on top of it. Uh, so I. Uh, I have to uh, commend uh, Kenny Leon and and the cast because they're so good at storytelling. Uh, I, I really expected the 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 Stacey Abrams banner twenty twenty, uh, you know, in full view of the audience for the entire show that that was going to somehow work its way in, but they never ever uttered the words. You mm. know, uh, well, it sounds like uh, oh, again, I haven't seen it. It sounds like this may have worked better than when they tried to uh, recast Julius Caesar yeah. for you know as a Trump. Yeah, <laughs> and then that yeah. was my my next thing was that the public does not shy away from these po- this politics and no uh, no, no, no no yeah <laughs> I mean uh, the Julius Caesar and and this much ado and you know that it just never uh, it it never leaves uh, and, and I think that that's a good thing for theater you know not that all theater needs to be political but uh, certainly if theater does get political uh, I don't. 
I don't generally see a, a problem with that in, sure. in most circumstances. I mean, Romeo and Juliet, how could that be non-political? I mean, it, it, it's really politics at the highest order. Mm-hmm. But I would argue this is arguably one of the least political of Shakespeare's plays. Oh, yeah. Since mm-hmm. you've got you know soldiers coming home from a war, but again, I never thought about it. But yeah, they never mention which war it is, who the enemy is. That doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, uh, working in the politics, but not uh, not beating us over the head with it, as with the Julius Caesar production, uh, which obviously would be very political. It's interesting to uh, see the soldiers carrying the protest signs. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil well, it. It's basically <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah. The thing about the the public is it's been playing for, it's been playing for six weeks and they only let us review it after five weeks of the production. You know, so. this is true. Yeah. Although, do you think it uh, has a- any afterlife? Yeah. God, I hope so. Here? I keep thinking of uh, Merchant of Venice and that transferred mm. uh, hair transferred other productions have transferred. I hope this transfers. Uh, it was wonderful just to see a very diverse audience. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Shakespeare in the Park productions, that they're accessible to everyone. And it was just, it, it was wonderful to see a very diverse audience. And like you said, it's, it's not, uh, this does not feel like an elitist production. It feels approachable, it feels accessible, and it feels like it is reaching out to a broader community. And... That was wonderful, and I would truly hope it transfers and has a longer life. So that is uh, Much Do About Nothing at the Delacorte at the Public Theater uh, Shakespeare in the Park production. I think it wraps up this week. Is it this week? I oh, is it, it so soon? I thought it was next week or so. Maybe oh. it's next week. Dang. I, I had it in front of me. I'll put it, I'll put the actual end date in the show notes, but uh, get out to see it if you can. Unfortunately, the weather report for the next week or so is not so good. Oh. So, uh, speaking well, that of— that would be when I would be going because I always get right now. Well, Michael, definitely go if you can. <laughs> definitely go if you can, although you do bring the thunder. Yes, I bring the thunder. You yeah. bring the thunder. We were just uh, mentioning Romeo and Juliet, and also this week we had the uh, passing of Franco uh, Zeffirelli, who is the famous director who directed the film version of Romeo and Juliet. So, uh, Michael, uh, as our uh, local film historian, <laughs> tell us about uh, Mr. Zeffirelli. Yes, he died at 96, uh, really a, a towering figure uh, for, for decades. And I uh, I know him mostly for his opera work, which is absolutely incredible. I've mentioned many times um, that he has uh, two of his productions remain in the repertory of the Metropolitan Opera, and both of them are being done next season, La Boheme and Turandot. And if there is any possible way you can get to see these live, I, I would say it, it'll be one of the most amazing experiences of your entire life. They're just, because uh, first of all, they're spectacularly beautiful on a very, very grand scale. But the thing is with him, if it was just empty spectacle, it, you know, I mean, that's fine, but it only goes so far, but he really was, uh, you know, a, a legitimate director of 
actors. And uh, he was always wonderful with uh, being able to provide very, uh, in operas, very, very uh, naturalistic, wonderfully uh, uh, you know, a very uh, organic stage business and blocking uh, that really brings operas to life. And as a, and he, since he had so much experience as well as a film director, um, he could, you know, help actors with actual, <laughs> you know, serious acting and and even and opera singers as well. And I think that combination of those two things in these productions is what really makes them just just beautiful and and so effective because in la boheme for example you have the uh, uh the act the famous act two set in the latin quarter of paris with uh, two, i think it's 300 people on stage or something like that but then you have the de- you know the that beautiful heartbreaking death scene at the end and where it's only five people on stage and it's so intimate and so real. So that is um, something I really would urge you to, to do uh, check when you get a chance, go to the Met website and see uh, the Bohem always, always, always sells out. And I think probably the tour dot as well. Uh, but uh, you know, you you can get a ticket if you if you if you um, plan ahead, and all and also I, I might add you for the price of a of a regular full price Broadway ticket, you could get an excellent excellent seat at the Met, and you could even get a a, a fairly decent, uh, perfectly good seat for considerably less than you would pay for the full price of a Broadway ticket. So check that all out. Um, it was interesting reading obits of Mr. Zeffirelli. I, he, he was, um, world famous. He became world famous for his 98, 1968 film of Romeo and Juliet as James mentioned with Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting and Michael York is also in it. Uh, that, that was a phenomenon. I remember I was, uh, well, let's see, I was 11 when it came out and it, I, I remember it was such a phenomenon that everyone saw it. We were taught it in school. Uh, my English teacher had a, uh, they actually, this film was so popular that they made a, uh, a recording of the of the soundtrack, uh, you know, I mean, the the dialogue uh, from the soundtrack, uh, or at least most of it. Uh, and it was a two or three LP set that the English teacher brought in and we listened to while reading the play. Um, and th- that was an incredible phenomenon. I, I, you know, I don't think that's ever been duplicated. Um, one thing I did not know uh, until uh, just reading an obit this morning, actually, is that, uh, as I said, that film was 1968. But in 1960, at the old Vic, um, Zeffirelli had staged Romeo and Juliet there with Judy Dench wow. as, as Juliet. Huh. Um, and it says, uh, yeah, can you imagine? It says um, – uh, his quote was, I went back to Blood, Heat, and Shakespeare, who wrote about a violent, riotous society full of love and tears. Um, that was Seferelli's quote on that production. And um, he – yeah, there's a, he directed a famous uh, – speaking of Shakespeare again – a famous film of Taming of the Shrew with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Um, so he, he really was, as I said, a towering figure. I uh, was uh, 
ashamed of myself for not knowing this and was kind of shocked to read um, about his politics. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I guess maybe I, I knew some of this at one point, but sort of had forgotten it or chose not to remember. Uh, he was highly conservative Roman Catholic and uh, served two terms in the Italian Senate as a member of Silvio Berlusconi's right-wing Forza Italia party. Um, he, uh, although he himself was homosexual, uh, Zeffirelli was uh, criticized by members of the gay community for publicly backing the Roman Catholic Church's position on homosexuality and by others for support of the church's position on abortion, which extended to calling for capital punishment for women who had terminated pregnancy. And he roused controversy again when he told a newspaper in 2006 that he had not suffered harm from sexual abuse by a priest as a child. So he um, had major issues uh, in all of that, as is, is, is clear. But sometimes people like that, who are very, very conflicted um, in their in their uh, in their emotional lives, those are the ones who wind up being geniuses and creating just really, really amazing works that that will stand the test of time. And that certainly that certainly applies to him. Who's going to write the Berlusconi musical or opera? <laughs> because that guy is—he is just made to be uh, that story. Maybe it could be, yes, yeah, sort of like a sequel to Evita. <laughs> Terrence McNally. <laughs> Terrence McNally. Oh, oh Terrence yeah. McNally! Did you see the tribute from uh, for Terrence at, at the at Tony Awards? Was this that just? Uh, Un unbelievable. We haven't talked um, since last week. It seems like it's been a month since the Tony Awards, but it's only been a mere seven days. So, Jenna and Michael, what were your thoughts on the Tony Awards? No huge surprises. No. Um, yeah. No. As you said on uh, Mondays, this uh, today on Broadway, uh, it, a lot of it went uh, as expected. I, I punched the air for <laughs> a couple of the awards. Uh, Ali Stroker... She has a Tony Award. I mean, we, we we had a president in a wheelchair before we had a performer on Broadway in a wheelchair. What the hell? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Why but is the this thing is, so long? In a, in a television era, there's been lots of discussion about how they hid his wheelchair, FTR's wheelchair. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and in this television world, would we ever get back to uh, – a uh, president in a wheelchair, but that's derailing the conversation about the Tony Awards. But uh, uh, it's very interesting because I just saw something about that in the last week or so. Yes. Yeah. Um, I uh, a lot of the awards, you know, went to the people you'd expect them to, as said. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I was surprised by uh, – not unhappy by, but I, a little surprised by the award to Bertie Carville. I just didn't yeah, think it was yeah. go his way. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't but disagree with it, but I was I was totally surprised about it. Yeah, yeah, not unearned. I mean, he did. No, no, a... no, not by any means. I thought I was hoping right. for Robin de Jesus because he was so wonderful in Boys uh, in the Band, and also I thought thought that was a superb production overall, and it would have been nice if it got uh, some recognition. Well, I mean, it did win uh, Best Revival of a Play. So, so yeah, so that's not every eye is going to cry for them. No. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. I'm still bitter. I didn't get to see that one. At some, I'm uh, very glad they're filming it for uh, Netflix. Is it? Yes. Yeah. I yes. Believe so yeah. That's good. That's excellent. Uh, Rachel Chavkin's award speech was fantastic. Again, punching the air. Uh, that was a beautiful moment. 
Uh, as I said on last week's This Week on Broadway, I really resent uh, so many of the words being presented during commercial breaks. Uh, that's It's just really cruel. And to say that you don't have time to present all of the awards during the broadcast, but then to set up sketches like Laura Linney and Audra McDonald fighting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. And then we could we should definitely discuss the uh, the be more chill moment and that little <laughs> kerfluffle. Should we call it a kerfluffle? The scandal, scandalette. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I I mean, on the one hand, I think that the lack of a setup was perfect because I don't think it would have been funny if before it they had said. Uh, well, here with a parody from Be More Chill is is uh, James Corden, etc. But I think that would have been, what they should have done is did it exactly the way they did, and then right after it, um, they could have explained what it was, and then maybe that would have been the place um, to give the uh, uh, to present the uh, what was it? How did uh, oh well, well they could have done it before the award for um, for composer for yeah. score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? oh that's because, interesting because yeah. that because that's what where the one nomination was for Joe Iconis. So that would have been a perfect way to do it. And, or even and, if the sorry yeah no no that's, no that's it yeah. And even if they just broke character and said hey thank you this was from a, a spoof of Michael in the bathroom or e- even if they had had uh, George Salazar walk out from one of the stalls yelling, you wouldn't let us perform on the show, but you'll do our song. What the hell? Yes, yes, yes. yes. They could have had a great punchline there <laughs> and it could have all been in fun. They could have still kept all the jokes. Um, but uh, the way they did it just seemed and you know, from what I heard, the Be More Chill team did offer to pay and they were told we don't have time to have you on. Yeah, they paid. They offered to pay to uh have a, a moment on the show and were turned down. So to have first turn them down and then turn around and do an uncredited spoof is again, it just seemed cruel. It does. And uh, it does seem, as I said, before we started recording, it almost seems like a conspiracy. It kind of did. Yeah. I mean, I, I not much one for conspiracy theories, but, <laughs> but seriously, the fact that they asked and they specifically tried to get onto the, the ceremony itself and then were turned down only to have this happen that it does kind of seem like it was someone someone had a grudge maybe i don't know and we would note that as others have noted that um share did was allowed to have yes. sort, of, sort of a performance even though they uh, were not nominated for best musical exactly yeah exactly so uh to have that happen is uh, very strange, uh, especially given the opening number of the Tony Awards, uh, which wasn't my favorite opening number of any Tony Awards, but I did like the sentiment of the opening number, being that this is a community that pulls together during award seasons, not pulls apart, uh, right. for not to be inclusive of the Be More Chill and... And uh, by any means, I'm not the biggest cheerleader for being more chill. I thought it was just an okay show, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought that there were other things that were much better. But it did seem as though that uh, there wasn't proper respect to 
pay to Joe Iconis and Jennifer Ashley Tepper and everybody who worked so hard to get it on Broadway. And Broadway is about is about art and it's about commerce and it's about uh, you know attempting new things and and all of those things uh, you know are, are relevant to be more chill. It's uh, it's a shame that Agreed. that uh, this happened. On the flip side. I'm glad to see so many people in the Broadway community coming to Be More Chill's defense and even Michael Riedel coming to Be More Chill's <laughs> defense, which I'm not sure if that is Michael Riedel as much as he has got his finger on the pulse of what is the hot topic mm-hmm. in the Broadway community, and he's jumped on that bandwagon. Yeah. So, well, uh, when I saw that, I was looking for pigs in treetops. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> So uh, back to what's the line from uh, When Pigs Fly, you'll see bacon taken wing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of my favorite things around the Tony Awards times is the um, uh, uh, is the media companies like the New York Times pull out all the stops and uh, prepare packages and stories and photos and things like that that are just absolutely amazing. One of the things that I had missed, but Michael, you promoted it so well on Facebook, was the New York Times, the dressing rooms of Broadway. Uh, and oh, some yes. beautiful, yeah. beautiful photos from uh, over over many, many years, of course, starting with Barbara. So uh, do do you want to talk for a second about this? I didn't prepare you for it. Are you prepared to talk about this for a second? Oh, well, uh, uh, please look it up online. Uh, I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you can't find it. Yeah. Yeah. And in in a way – in a way, it's almost better online uh, because the, the the quality of the photos, you know, digitally yeah. on a computer screen. But uh, but that you know, it's it certainly was wonderful to have it in hard copy. All these amazing photos in in dressing rooms of various theaters over the decades. Um, there were some errors in the text, uh, you know, for whatever that's worth. But uh, so you can uh, be mindful of that fact. But can we uh, talk to Jesse Green and get those corrected? Were, were, were they substantial errors? I mean, we can email t- Jesse. Um, there were there were a couple that I actually not- noticed and noted uh, on Facebook, but um, they may have been fixed for the for the online version. Actually, I didn't check that. I, sh- I should do so when I get a chance. Uh, but but regardless, it was really a, a wonderful wonderful thing that they did and to see uh, the, the in the print version they were large format photos they were like not full page <laughs> uh you know for this uh, it was like a magazine size insert to the paper but they were very large um and that that was spectacular and um going back to the tonys momentarily i i think one thing that everyone would agree on is something that jenna mentioned about how I mean, it's fine to have fluff and little comic sketches, but if it's going to be at the expense of seeing uh, major people accept their awards, then I think that that really goes way too far. And people really don't like it, and they should figure out a way. They just should figure out a way to get back to that, cut out a lot of the frippery and, and go back to having everyone accept their awards on camera, especially when it when it becomes lifetime achievement awards to people like Terrence McNally and Rosemary Harris. I mean, that's just 
it's just not acceptable. It's disrespectful to to not have all of their speeches on on the telecast. Um, and on related to that note, I hope that many of our listeners got to see uh, Terrence McNally, Every Act of Life, which is a really, really well done documentary that just aired on PBS. I think the actual air date was Friday. I didn't get to see it that night, but I watched it the next day online. Uh, maybe, uh, um, James, you could put a link to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, it's it's so well done. It's been in prep for quite a few years, I believe, and they have amazing clips and photo and old photos. Uh, you know, plus an extensive, obviously, interview with with Terrence himself and such talking heads in you know new interviews as Audra McDonald, F. Murray Abraham, Christine Baranski, Nathan Lane. Angela Lansbury and Rita Moreno. Uh, so it's it's a little bit of wonderful theater history for with someone who I'm sure many people would say qualifies as a living legend. So the uh, Airy Active Life has its own website at AiryActiveLifeDocumentary.com, and I'll link to it in the show notes uh, so that you can check it out. It uh, just that the, this section in, in the Tony Awards for Terrence McNally was just wonderful. And did you guys uh, see the Billy Porter uh, Everything Coming Up Roses that they did during the commercial break? Yeah, Time for that. another Gypsy revival. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I uh, actually saw him on Ninth Avenue yesterday, but I didn't get a chance to say hi. <laughs> but it's just so funny to... To see him, like, you know, in regular dress walking down the street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't see that every day. <laughs> we do not deserve Billy Porter. I mean, what have we done to have Billy Porter bestowed upon us? God, he's wonderful. I don't know. I don't. I think I may have mentioned this before on the show is that uh, I used to live in the same building as Billy. Uh, on Ooh. 44th between 9th and 10th. Uh, we've both since moved since now, so I don't feel bad revealing that. Uh, and uh, Billy would warm up at every, every morning at 11 a.m. and the whole building would just stop and listen because oh, it was wow. just unbelievably beautiful. Uh, I may have mentioned that, um, you know, of course, he largely became famous for his incredible voice. Um, but also, he really is a wonderful, wonderful actor. And one of the best things I ever saw him in was that off-Broadway revival of Angels in America. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes. Yes. He played Belize. Uh, I mean, he was so, so good in that. So he really, really can do this serious, you know, uh, the real 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 acting not just the fabulous over the top stuff he does both equally well i haven't seen pose so i can't uh, judge from that but i mean he he did not win his tony award for nothing he did a beautiful job in kinky boots oh his uh, tony award speech was hysterical do you remember that no i don't uh, what did he say he said something along the lines of uh uh, this is this is uh, I didn't win this alone. I won this for everybody in kinky boots. Uh, 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 mm-hmm. But but I'm going to hold on to this here <laughs> for y'all. <laughs> and I'll I'll never forget he was a guest on our podcast. Yes, uh, 
it was during uh, the run-up to Shuffle Along. Shuffle Along, that's oh, right. Oh, yeah. wow, yes. I, but uh-huh. I think Shuffle Along had just been announced, and I'll never forget it. Uh, James, I'm sure you remember we had him yeah. on, and we were asking him questions about it. But he didn't know a lot because it had really just just been announced. you know. Mm-hmm. So he talked for a little bit, but then he said um, – uh, you know, he said, but I better stop talking now because I don't want uh, Scott Rudin to get mad at me because yeah. I'm a scared him. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I do remember that it distinctly. It's very funny. <laughs> I'm a scared of him. <laughs> you know who I'm a scared of? Who? Stephen Sondheim. He just intimidates me. Oh. And you saw him a couple of weeks ago, didn't you, at the theater? So uh, Yes, when I went to see Frankie and Johnny. Frankie I, and I, Johnny. I, I told the uh, story. I was picking up my tickets, and he was literally one foot uh, away from me. <laughs> so, uh, Lincoln Center Theater is going to do uh, a Sondheim Gala at the American Songbook Series. Uh, Michael, you're going to go see that. It's coming up, right? Yes, it's not. Uh, it's not actually Lincoln Center Theater. It's Lincoln Center. Uh, oh, that's Lincoln, right. Yeah. Lincoln Center honors Stephen yeah. Sondheim at an American Songbook Gala, which is. I, I don't think I even knew about this event until a few days ago and then I suddenly read about it. It's this coming Wednesday the nineteenth, um, at Alice Tully Hall, uh, musical direction by Paul Gemignani, Lonnie Price directing, and the but the company, the cast is are you ready? It's all right, it's Ashley Park, Donna Murphy, Kate Baldwin, and Petula Clark. Hmm. Um so I got I somehow scored a ticket and I, I'm so excited and interested to see what's going to, you know, what this is going to turn into and uh, specifically what Petula is going to sing. I, I, I'm sure I mentioned some years ago, I went to see her in concert and we went backstage and we were talking afterwards and, um, and I forget how it came up, but, uh, I said, uh, you know, cause I, I think Sondheim came up somehow and I said, you know, you know, Mrs. Lovett would be a great role for you, Petula. And she said, hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so maybe she'll do some Mrs. Lovett. Or if not, you know, I'm thinking maybe send in the clowns. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to be incredibly special. Okay. And uh, before we wrap up for the day, uh, Jenna, you got over to see Octet, uh, the much-heralded uh, – acapella musical that I didn't RSVP to, so I can't see. So, uh, yeah, I thought that I didn't get invited Uh and I went back in my email and I was like, oh, I did get invited. I missed it. Oh, no, reach out. Try, try. Well, I I mean, it's been extended once and it's such a hot ticket. I will try again, but I, I feel bad because the press reps, they have to be 10 times more exhausted than we are after the Tony Awards. This is true. God bless so, the press reps. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about and, Octet for a second. Uh, Michael reported on it a couple of weeks ago, but what do you think? Yeah, and I was uh, just listening to Peter and Jan's recap from, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, Peter really liked it. Jan didn't. Uh, I'm I'm in Peter's camp. I'm still processing the show and its themes. It hasn't even been 24 hours since I've seen it. Uh but I, I'm still thinking about it, which says a lot about the the depth of the show that I'm still pondering. Uh, I mean, it made me catch my breath on quite a few occasions. Uh, so the musical has book, music, and lyrics, uh, and even vocal arrangements by Dave Malloy of Natasha Pierre fame. The musical is almost entirely a cappella, with occasional percussion 
from the actors on stage to back up the singing. So this makes sure that every one of the eight characters has a voice, not only telling about their own lives and their own problems, but they take part in other people's stories. Everyone overlaps. And I think that's a beautiful little metaphor for life, for support. Everyone has to back up everyone else, which is lovely. So the musical's premise is a bit heady. Uh, Eight strangers or semi-strangers are brought to a church basement for a support group for internet addiction. All of them were contacted by an unseen man who none of them actually know named Saul. Uh, Perhaps not very coincidentally, that's the name of the biblical king who brought a group of tribes together into the ancient state of Israel. So that I was wondering what the metaphor for that name was during the show. I had the feeling that concept of bringing together is uh, meant to be there through the name. Uh, Over the course of 90 or so intermissionless minutes, the addicts sing about their love and their hate of the internet and of modern technology. And the show is at its best when their problems overlap. Uh, One song combines a woman's lament about the challenges of dating apps with a man's ode to online incel culture. And it becomes a genuinely chilling moment. Uh, Another woman sings about the outrage machine. A man sings about an unnamed game that includes candy and crushing, but the name doesn't actually get named, which uh, the name of the game isn't uh, mentioned during the song, which is a cute little touch. Uh, There are a lot of different facets to internet addiction, and Malloy gives quite a few of these facets equal weight. Uh, In between each character's story, we get hymns about healing and support. And while the songs are beautiful, I I do think they somewhat weaken the tension that builds during the show. I hope uh, as the show goes further, maybe further development, those moments can be rearranged to make sure the tension keeps building. Uh, The cast of eight is just phenomenal. They work beautifully together. Uh, singing, not just singing together, but singing a cappella is incredibly difficult. You have to learn to breathe in absolute harmony and to start and stop each note. You can't just trust that a violin will come in and cover if you hold on a note a beat too long. Uh, and the cast of eight does amazing work. Adam Bashian, Kim Blank, Star Busby, Alex Gibson, Justin Gregory Lopez, J.D. Mollison, Margot Seibert, and Kuho Verma do amazing work together, uh, both as in, individual performers but backing each other up. Uh, Kuho Verma deserves an extra shout-out. Uh, she has the, the only solo without backup singing, and she sings completely a cappella, uh, without anyone else to give her support. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be. Uh, and she do, uh, it's such a beautiful moment with just her sitting on the stage singing. And I don't want to spoil what her song is about, but it makes sense that she would be the only one not to have the backup. Uh, lovely moment. Margot Seibert, who I just love since Tomorrow of the River back a couple of years ago, is also uh, just wonderful in her song. Uh, Again, the entire cast as a unit does amazing work, and they're really lovely. Um, Sorry, hold on a sec, flipping pages. The uh, lighting design, Christopher Bowser's lights are fascinating. Uh, The set goes from, uh, the lighting for the set goes from 
fluorescent basement church, uh, fluorescent lights in the basement of a church uh, to light pouring through stained glass windows. Sometimes it's this bright glare of a screen. It really covers a lot of ground very effortlessly, and the shifts in the lighting really work well to emphasize the mood. Uh, Amy Rubin and Brittany Vasta created the set, and it genuinely looks like a church basement, rather nondescript. But there is, uh, to get to the stage, we have to walk through what looks like a basement hall with posters everywhere. It just gets the audience into the space before we get to our seats. Uh, Really nice touch. I enjoyed the immersion from the moment our tickets are scanned to the time we sit down. We are being brought into this world and we are being, I don't want to say incorporated, but we are part of this story. Uh, Each of these characters, what they're going through uh, can be reflected by anyone in the audience, our own addictions, our own love of technology, our desires to fight online, to connect online. And it's, it's universal. And we are brought into that world from the moment our tickets are scanned. Uh, One thing I was trying to ponder, I mean, I don't believe any set piece is ever accidental or unintentional. Uh, And I'm sorry, I didn't jot these numbers down when I was heading out. On the wall is a sign mentioning what hymns will be performed during the service. And it was, I think, 13, uh, like hymn 13, hymn 51, and 81, something like that. But they all led up to multiples of three. It was, uh, I think it was six, uh, nine, and 15, I believe they all added up to. Uh and I'm and wondering, is that referring to a Holy Trinity? I, I'm genuinely curious as to why the numbers on the set uh, all were multiples of three. And That's really interesting. <laughs> I, I was just fascinated when I caught that. And I'm wondering, I, I want to reach out to the set designers and say, what was the symbolism there? I, 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 do you guys ever watch the television show Lost? Maybe it was the Lost Ooh. numbers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I hadn't thought of that, but certainly possible. <laughs> and I'm guessing it's something to do with Trinity, but the show is not in and of itself inherently religious, even though it takes place in a church basement. And even though an unnamed person named Saul uh, is guiding the characters. Um, so I was just genuinely wondering about the hymn numbers and why each of them adds up to a multiple of three. Mm. So, this is a fascinating piece. I don't think it's perfect yet, but Malloy reworked Natasha Pierre from its original workshop productions before it reached Broadway. I hope Mm -hmm. he continues working on this one. It is genuinely thought provoking. It is powerful. And there is nothing like being in an audience of, it's a reasonably sized theater. A couple hundred people were in there, Uh, fewer than 500, but I would guess easily 300, 300 people sitting very close together in a room and we're all holding our breath so that we can hear people singing without any instruments to back them up. It's a thrilling moment. And I hope the show, if it can't extend again, that it transfers and has a longer life. Yeah, the talent level of that cast is absolutely breathtaking. Isn't it? 
And I think the only I think the only one I'd ever heard of before was Margot Seibert. Yeah. So to have all those people suddenly, you know, there singing a cappella and, and so, so beautifully throughout the whole show. Uh, of course, we had in transit, mm-hmm. um, you know, also and- with Margot Seibert. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So I guess she's really, really, really good at that. She's but, got her niche. Uh, yeah, I mean that I was in awe when they did that show because I I just think, uh, you know, anyone who knows even the basics of music can understand I think how incredibly difficult it is to do that. Absolutely. So I, I I just I'm in awe. I really am in awe of these people. Absolutely. And again, I was reading uh, a few months ago. I was reading production notes for uh, Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. And in the score, it mentions uh, for the ensemble, you have to start rehearsing the ensemble before you rehearse the leads because they have to sing like a choir and they have to start breathing together. They have to come in together so that they're not straggling microseconds apart as they begin singing. Mm -hmm. And even if it's microseconds apart, the audience will notice it. It'll sound not cohesive, not like a whole. And so I was very aware of this cast singing every, you know, they were down to the microsecond, they were all singing together. And there was not a beat missed. There was not a note that was held a fraction of a second too long. And it was just breathtaking. That's the thing. And of course, the difference there is that in this case, they don't have a conductor. I did notice some of the the soloists would conduct, uh, would serve as conductor for their own numbers uh, in a couple moments. But those were only a few. It was not consistent. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not like uh, like, you know, as if if it's an actual show with a with a, you know, and of course, now usually it's the conductors are usually on monitors anyway. But I don't think that I I mean, or maybe there was and I didn't see it. Uh, I didn't actually I don't recall if I looked for monitors. I did. I did not see any uh, from where I was sitting. Uh, I couldn't see any. But also I noticed uh, during. during Kuhu Verma's uh, solo, mm. curtains were drawn around the set. So even if there had been any monitors, uh, the actor, she at least, would not have been able to see them for that moment. And yeah. I'm still not sure why the curtains were drawn around the set for that moment. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that uh, wraps up our review and discussion section here. We're going to uh, say goodbye to Jenna and Michael for right now and head over to Carrie Purcell and interview. So, Michael and uh, Jenna, thank you so much and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next week. You talk too. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. joined by my good friend Carrie Purcell. Carrie is a freelance journalist who's been published in American Theatre Magazine, Playbill, The New York Times, Vanity Fair, The Village Voice, and many other publications. Her upcoming book, From Alphabet to Fun Home, A Cultural History of Feminist Theatre, will be published in December 2019 by Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Hey, Carrie, how have you been? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I see you at the theater every now and then, but you've been uh, hunkered down writing a book for the last uh, year or so. So welcome yes, back. Yes, I to, have. <laughs> welcome back to Broadway Radio. We're very excited to have you back. I'm excited to be back. With us today, we have a very special guest, 
Mark Perry is with us. He is the producer of an upcoming production of Quilt, a musical celebration which is going to happen on June 21st to the 23rd over at uh, the Jim at Judson on 55 Washington Square South. Mark, thanks for uh, joining us on Broadway Radio. Thanks very much. Um, I have to correct you. Uh, first of all, I apologize. Um, it's actually at Judson Memorial Church. Oh. Um, we are actually too big to fit inside the gym over there, so we've expanded up into their larger space. And that's uh, basically at the same facility. So if you've if you've been at the gym at Judson, you can easily find the uh, the the church as well, right? Yes, that is correct. It's right on the south side of Washington Square Park, um, and is is hard to miss. Excellent. So uh, June 21st to 23rd, only four performances, and you have uh, two stars, uh, Andrew Leeds and, and Diana DeGarmo. Tell us about uh, you know, how you got involved in this project. Um, so this project uh, was a brainchild that came about a little over a year ago um, as we started thinking about um, the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising and uh, New York City hosting World Pride. And we started thinking about, you know, if we're looking at the last 50 years of LGBTQ plus history, we can't really do that without looking at the history of HIV and AIDS. And if we're going to talk about what makes the community great, what makes the community great is the community itself. And so we decided to sort of combine those two concepts and um, create a production that centers around the community and embraces a number of community groups and brings them together, pairs them with um, incredibly talented professional performers, a full symphony orchestra, several choirs, um, and the uh, largest installation of the HIV, uh, I'm sorry, the AIDS memorial quilt in New York City in over a decade, um, and really looks to the history of what makes this community great, which the play, I think, sort of takes the, the stance that what makes us great is our ability to come together, um, even in the face of adversity, even in the face of our diversity, um, to find a way to speak with one clear voice and to build beauty um, and joy out of even the hardships that have faced our community. So that was sort of the, the genesis of the project. Mark, I'm curious. Um, this show was written in 1992. How do you think it speaks to an audience in 2019? Sure. The gay community, um, and I use that term broadly and expansively, um, the queer community, I guess, has been facing a lot of um, adversity recently. You know, the, the Trump administration certainly is not a friend of ours. Um, uh, hate crimes have been on the uptick. And um, this is a time when the community is sort of coalescing again and becoming more active. Um, and what's interesting is in order to look at the current events, I think we have to know where we have come from and we have to think about the big events as a community that we've sort of faced. And, you know, especially with Greenwich Village being sort of 
uh, Ground Zero is overselling it, but um, but being sort of the epicenter of the AIDS crisis, especially in the 80s and 90s with St. Vincent's Church, I'm sorry, with St. Vincent's Hospital, um, you know, that has been really one of the formative events of the the gay world of New York City. Um, and this year in particular is the year to look backward at where we've come from, right, with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, and to look where we're going, you know, with uh, primary season rapidly coming upon us and recognizing, you know, who our friends have always been and, and who has uh, not been so friendly to us. And some of those aspects are explored in the play as well. It sounds um, it sounds like Judson is a great, a very appropriate place to hold this production, given its own history of social justice and activism. Um, can you tell us what made you decide on Judson as the venue? Um, Judson has been a huge supporter of the queer community uh, for years. They have marched in every single Pride march um, since 1970. Um, there are members of the church that were part of the Stonewall uprising. Um, and they also have a very active and strong um, arts program there. They have sort of a new play development series that presents new works uh, every Wednesday. And they actually said to me that one of their philosophies is that artists can function as modern day prophets. They show us where we come from. They show us where we are, and they show us what we can be. And that sense of really exploring what the universe means, I thought was really fitting for this show. Um, because this isn't a show that is, you know, sparklers and dancing girls, right? This is a show that is about um, important stories and, you know, uh, trying to find what's important about really human issues, about loss and about love and about um, what it means to go through the very difficult process of being a human being. And can you tell uh, us um, who's telling those stories? Can you tell us a little bit about the cast and who will be performing? Yeah, sure. So the play, uh, it's, I'm, I'm going to call the mu I'm going to call the show half musical, half play, half cantata. Um, so we've got a full symphony orchestra and we've got a full choir. Um, but the play tells the story of like t maybe two dozen individuals who lost their lives to the AIDS pandemic. But the stories are told by the people who love them and who survived. So the characters are the parents the lovers, the next door neighbors, the nurse, um, the, the friend across the street. And the through line is that these are all the people who went on to make quilt panels in their honor. And the quilt is a really beautiful metaphor because unlike many memorials like the Vietnam Memorial or even like the Washington Monument, which are cold, which are hard, you know, the quilt is a monument that is meant to comfort that is meant to be bright, that is meant to be beautiful and feel loving. Um, and so what we've done is we've wrapped the quilt around the entire outside of the 
church space. It's going to be 12 feet high, and it's going to wrap around the entire auditorium, um, sort of enveloping people, enveloping the audience in the real lives that were lost. Um, so the, the characters who are telling this story are sort of stand-ins for you and for me who maybe know somebody or have lost somebody to this disease. Um, and I mentioned that we've got Andrew Leeds and we've got uh, Diana DeGarmo, who are both some of the kindest, sweetest people that I've ever met. Um, and they're both incredibly talented. But then we've got probably three dozen members of the community who are dedicating their time um, as professionals and semi-professionals um, in order to really bring this to light. And all of those members or all of those, those performers are members of community groups. So we've got the Greenwich Village Orchestra which is one of the top community orchestras in the country. Um, take a look at their videos on YouTube sometime, or I think they're at uh, gvo.org. They are the real deal. Um, we've got the West Village Chorale. We've got um, Candid Theater Company, which has come all the way from Minneapolis. Um, and then we've also got the Names Foundation, which is the keeper of the actual quilt. Um, so all of those organizations have dedicated their time, their resources to being able to make this production happen. That's really inspiring. And this is a production that's also benefiting other organizations as well, correct? That is correct. Um, so this is a benefit production for two charities. Um, one of them is the Callan Lord Community Health Center which um, has been at the forefront of HIV and AIDS treatment since um, before HIV and AIDS even had a name. Interestingly, they actually also got their start as um, not focused on HIV specifically, but for the LGBT community in 1969. So they're also celebrating their 50th anniversary. Um, and then we're also uh, uh, benefiting an organization called Frontline AIDS, which previously had been called the International HIV AIDS Alliance. And this organization um, does incredible work and treats over 2 million people around the world for HIV AIDS um, treatment and prevention in places like India, Uganda, Ecuador. Um, and so it was important to us that this be an example of the community coming together to do good for the community meaning both locally and internationally in places where they don't have maybe access to the same kind of health infrastructure that we do. This sounds like an amazing event and sounds like a real passion project as well. So we hope so. <laughs> so you're producing the show, but you're also a frequent theater goer. Yep. Can you tell me what, how the show and how this event is speaking to you as an audience member, as a, a theater fan, you know, how it speaks sure. to you on, a, on an emotional core level? Um, for me, I tend to think that really good theater is where aesthetics and meaning meet, right? Where something has really juicy importance to it that is exploring the ultimate questions of the universe, um, but is also really pretty. 
Um, <laughs> and and I like a good spectacle, right? Um, and for me, the spectacle of this production, I've been using the phrase epic in its simplicity, um, that these are individual people telling their stories, but the stories they're telling are so big, right? You know, this is how do I deal with the fact that you know, in 1993, my best friend died, and I don't know if it's safe for me to go to the LGBT center to learn how to honor his death. Or my child, um, you know, just moved to New York, and then I found out he's gay, and now I have to deal with this, right? Um, these are sort of like really big issues that are told with a full symphony orchestra in a beautiful church that was built in 1850 something by one of the most famous architects in the world with, by one of the most famous stained glass window makers in the world um, with the largest installation of the AIDS Memorial quilt enveloping me at uh, World Pride. So while it is simple and while it is sort of Pure feels like the wrong word, but like uh, distilled, there is this sort of gorgeous vigil um, spectacle to it as well, which I think is a really beautiful combination. It sounds like it's going to be an incredibly emotional experience being in the audience. Should I not wear mascara when I come to see it? You know that I cry <laughs> at theater a lot. I, I know that you cry. I was sat next to you while you were crying at theater. Um, I would say uh, you probably don't want to wear mascara because we are going to take you on a roller coaster. Um, but it's also important to note that the subtitle of the play is a musical celebration. Um, and the two characters that provide a through line for this play, um, Diana's character and Andrew's character, um, are kind of the comic relief of the show, right? So uh, Andrew is one of the main company members at the Groundlings in LA. So he's got a comedy background. Um, and Diana's character is sort of bouncing all around and her music is really, really fun. So this is a play that ultimately I think, uh, while it takes you for a ride, does lift us all up at the end. Um, the first lyric of the play is, out of something terrible comes something beautiful. And then I think the play does its best to do that for the next, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours. And the finale is a song called One Voice and sort of dives into this idea of, you know, when you look at all of these panels and we're going to have, I think it comes out to 144 quilt panels. Each of them is different right? But this one has some sparkle on it and that one has some sequins and, you know, Liberace's panel is appropriately Liberace-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at it, there's this like beautiful uh, mosaic effect where it all sort of blends together into one sort of gesture. And I think that's what the play does, where we get into this, you know, each individual story is just a little part of the whole. But when we look at the whole, it becomes this beautiful, uplifting upswell of support and love. Um, so I hope that everybody's going to walk out uh, with tears of joy and tears of, um, of comfort and tears of embrace um, that, that feels much more uh, uh, celebration than funeral. Um, because the play is not 
morbid. It doesn't get stuck in, oh my God, these people died. It got stuck, it gets stuck in, look what's left. Look what we get to do as a result of everything that we've been through. And isn't that a beautiful thing for all of us to embrace? That even when, even when stuff goes sideways and, you know, even in the face of the political stuff that's going on right now, do we still pick up and we, we go, let's get some sequins, mm-hmm. right? Let's, let's remember how, what a, what a talented pediatrician this person was and set up his medical coat as an, a memorial to his name. Like how, how beautiful is that to be remembered forever by this organization that exists only to memorialize those human beings. And that's what we're doing is sitting and coming together with these 65 performers all performing in the same place and remembering. And I think that's really special. Mark, when, when was the first time you uh, were acquainted with the show, uh, the, the quilt show, Quilt and Musical? Um, the first time that I was acquainted with it um, actually, I wasn't acquainted with it when I was acquainted with it. A friend of mine mentioned when I was in college that my high school had done this play when I was in eighth grade. So I wasn't in it. But she had mentioned, and this was a few years ago, that this play meant more to her than any other play that she had been in. Um, and she has gone on to... She's probably my most famous friend from high school. So like that sort of stuck with me. Um, and then when I first started thinking about, oh, I'd like to do something meaningful for pride that goes beyond the muscle boys and speedos at the pier dance, right? Which there's certainly room for that, but you know, um, (laughs) that jumped into my head as something that was meaningful and beautiful. Um, and so I actually went to the performing arts library at Lincoln center, um, and was able to, uh, because I was beginning to work on this, was able to watch a video of the original production of this, which was in 1993 and was created in conjunction um, between a couple of universities and the Smithsonian Institute, uh, marking the presentation of the AIDS quilt on the National Mall. And that event was the first time that a sitting president and first lady, Bill and Hillary Clinton, um, saw the AIDS quilt and really sort of brought attention to this issue after the uh, less than ideal response that the Reagan administration gave it. Mm. Um, And that was the first time I found this play. And the poetry and the lyrics um, just really sort of punched me in the gut. It's very human, but also very um, profound. And um, telling, like I said, these big stories in a very simple and clear way. You know, one of the songs, um, I think it's actually right at the end of Act One, um, centers around this woman um, who... What she remembers is she could always rely on that person um, to do her a favor. And all she does to honor his memory is think through all of the things that she could ask him for. 
which is such a simple thing, right? That, I mean, James, you and I just met each other a minute ago, and I feel like if I asked you if you could open this pickle jar for me, like, you would do that for me. But those interactions are what forge human relationships. Hmm. And that's, that's important. Um, and it was those kinds of little moments that sort of become poetic within the context of, you know, the quilt and how we decide to memorialize people that came before us. So you are um, uh, a lawyer by training and a dramaturg by training and a number of other disparate uh, talents <laughs> talents yeah. that all have come together to pull from different parts of your life to create this uh, production that's coming up. Uh, yeah. If, uh, if we could say again, June 21st to the 23rd at, at Judson uh, Church. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, how, uh, how is this, this is the, is this the first manifestation of pulling these talents together and uh, you know, what's your kind of history around that? Sure. Um, so yeah, this is the first time that I have really led a production from a I don't know, business producer standpoint, whatever. Um, my original training was in dramaturgy and it, I went through an existential crisis about a year after I graduated and made the decision. Um, the, the one decision in my life that I regret more than anything else that I've done, <laughs> which uh, was to go to law school. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, I'm, I'm kind of joking. Um, but what mm -hmm. I realized, uh, what I quote unquote realized at the time was that theater didn't matter. That's, that's the regret. I was convinced that I couldn't convince people of things because they would only go to see shows that they already agreed with. And I was like, I can make a bigger difference if I go to law school. Mm -hmm. And so I went to law school and blah, blah, blah. And now I represent construction companies, which is isn't that important, a, right? Isn't that a sort of theater, though? It is. Oh, it absolutely is, right? Standing in front of people, convincing them to listen to you, learning how to interact with another human being. Um, these are all very important things. And, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. Like, absolutely. But what I discovered through that entire process is that while, you know, practical matters like who is responsible for the leaking windows are important, it is the stories that we choose to tell one another that make the most difference. <laughs> and I've been wanting to go back to theater for a long time, and I've sort of started, I'm calling it MJP Theatrical with the long-term goal of democratizing theater and storytelling at all levels of production, which is something that you and I can talk about at a, on another podcast yeah. sometime. Mm -hmm. um, but the goal is to find ways to tell stories that are important um, and that matter to people that want to hear them and need to hear them. So to that end, you can get tickets for as little as $35 to this show. Mm -hmm. And there are discounts to be had online or through any one of our uh, charitable partners um, also have discount codes as well. So if you're familiar with any of them, you can get a discounted ticket through them. If any of that's too much and you can't afford to come see it anyway, 
shoot me an email on the website and we'll make sure that you can get in. We don't want anyone to not be able to see the show um, for lack of funds. And Mark, just for the record, you know I can open a pickle jar. Oh, well, you have opened pickle jars for me. Um, Carrie has been there for many of the favors that I have needed in life. Um, But when Carrie opens pickle jars, there's usually alcohol in them. Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lawyer right here. I'll see you for slander. (laughs) Oh, I just have to, you know, the, the, the defense of slander is the truth, you know? The, <laughs> we just have to show your your Instagram. I do not do pickleback shots. I don't like them. <laughs> Mark, uh, you know you could be called somewhat of a Shakespearean scholar, right? Um, scholar is maybe a strong word, um, but I worked at Chicago Shakespeare Theater for five years. I have lectured at the university level on um, sort of an introduction to Shakespeare sort of level. Um, and Shakespeare, uh, actually, again, because of the poetic approach to very um, human interactions, um, has always been a great love of mine. So if I were to say one line, you could probably complete the line, right? Oh, dear. I'm certainly willing to try. Okay. Uh, one of Shakespeare's shows, uh, the line was, the first thing we do. Ah, uh, yes, is we kill all the lawyers. Henry That's the right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Henry the Sixth. Yep. That's actually one of my favorite scenes. Um, and I can't say that he's wrong. If you read the entire scene, I can't say that he's wrong. I don't suggest murdering anyone, but, um, you know, sometimes sometimes the lawyers get in the way. <laughs> That's true. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Uh, to remind the listeners, uh, Quilt, a musical celebration, is going to be playing at the Judson Church on June 21st to the 23rd. You can get tons of information at their website, uh, quiltmusical.org, which will be in the show notes. And, uh, Mark, please come back and uh, tell us about how it all went after the fact, all right? James, thanks so much. And, Carrie, thank you for being here as well. So remember that Quilt, a musical celebration, is going to be from June 21st to the 23rd down at uh, Judson Church on 55 Washington Square South. And don't forget that Carrie's book, From Alfred Ben to Fun Home, A Cultural History of Feminist Theater, will be published in December 2019 by Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Carrie, thanks so much for uh, joining us back on Broadway Video. We hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Okay, Peter, so give us the answer to last week's trivia. Well, the question was, a fight director and a star who were once married are both represented on Broadway at the moment. Who are they and to what shows are they connected? Well, J. Stephen White, who did the fight direction for Burn This, was married to All My Sons star Annette Benning from 1984 to 1991. In 1992, she married someone else. So that's the answer. Now, next week's question. Lyricists love cleverness, William Goldman wrote in his landmark book, The Season. Audiences don't care all that much about uppity rhyming with cup of tea. Ironically, one of the musicals of that 1967-68 season that Goldman wrote about did indeed have a song in which uppity rhymed with cup of tea. What's the song 
and what's the show from which it came? All right. If you have an answer to that, you need to email me at trivia at broadwayradio.com because Peter will not be checking his email this week. So if you email Peter directly, you're not part of the competition. So trivia at broadwayradio.com, and I will let you know next week if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier and Janetessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to your Broadway videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Sticks nor stones uh, like uh,